And we'll pick up our reading there at verse 6. That's Psalm 45, uh, commencing there at the sixth verse. Hear once again the word of our God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. Thus far the reading of God's word and may he bless it to us this evening. There's a moment in the Song of Solomon in which the bride of Christ comes to her beloved with a question. And the question is very straightforward. It's simply this, tell me, she says, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? It's the bride of Christ, it's the church of Christ who speaks here. And, and obviously, her desire is just to be wherever the one whom she loves can be found. Wherever he, wherever he is and wherever she might expect to find him, that's where she longs to be. But, but the question remains, where is this? Her desire sounds true, but, but the reality is it's a question nonetheless. Where can she find the one whom she loves? Well, in many ways, beloved, when we look at Psalm 45, we have both a picture of that desire that prompts the question and also an answer to this very question. And I want us to consider that, beloved, considering all that we've thought about so far in Psalm 45. You remember that the psalmist begins with that like desire. He begins by telling us that from his heart and skillfully he is going to prevent, present to us the majesty of his Christ. And again, this is emanating from a heart, emanating from a man whose affections are warmed, inclined to the Christ of whom he writes. It's the very self-same idea, the very self-same desire you read of in the Song of Solomon. But strikingly, as we considered last time we were together, now three weeks ago, the psalmist, as he presents to us the glory and the majesty of his Christ, he comes in verses 6 and 7 to a remarkable statement. Thy throne, O God. You see what the psalmist has done. As he has meditated on the glory of Christ, he comes in the 6th and 7th verses to call him none other than deity. I suppose that makes sense, doesn't it? I suppose it makes sense that as the man meditates upon the glory of God, upon the glory specifically of Jesus Christ as his princely redeemer, that the terminus is inevitably going to lead us to reflection on those perfections that are eternally and infinitely in the second person of the Godhead. 
It makes sense, doesn't it? That, that the psalmist is going to lead us to think about Christ as he's possessed of the divine nature in its fullness. That stands to reason. But when you come to our text this evening, the 8th verse, what's striking is, verses 6 and 7 is not where he left off. In verse 8, he continues his meditation on the glory of Christ. Before he moves, in verse 10, to describe the bride, before he comes to, to give us a glimpse of the church, he tarries a little longer, after this incredible statement that he's just made, he tarries a little longer. There is something more that must be said about the glory, about the loveliness of this Christ. And that, of course, is our text this evening. So what does the psalmist say? He says in verse 8, All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. The garments there, the words are variously translated, clothes, raiment, even robes. And the sense is, is that these robes that Christ has, these are, these are perfumed with the best spices. They are filled, as it were, with the aroma of the greatest things the world could offer. And what's striking is, of course, all of these aromas are found throughout the scriptures to describe precisely that. Uh, that, that aroma, that fragrance, that is most likely to appeal to men. That, that fragrance that is most costly. Here the psalmist says, Christ's garments smell of these. And then we're told not only that he has these robes, but he tells us where this fragrance is most to be found. Note what he says here, out of the ivory palaces. This is where the king's robes, their fragrance emanates, wafts most freely. And what's striking is the word palaces here is the same word in the Hebrew that's translated elsewhere as temples or houses. The idea is this is the place of the king's abode. The place of the king's abode is a fragrant place. A place in which these pleasing aromas are found. And then you come in the, for that final line to that statement, whereby they have made the glad. The antecedent we, under, we should understand there is not the palaces, but the robes and their aroma. That's it in the original. The antecedent is the garments. And these, says the psalmist, are the objects of Christ's delight. Christ, clothed as he is with these aromatic garments, as he sits in his place of residence, he delights in the fragrance. He delights in the very things that the psalmist delights in in this text. To understand this, beloved, we need to remember, of course, the theme of Psalm 45, which is, as we've already said, Christ as he is our royal savior, as he is our princely redeemer. And if we understand that, then we understand that what the psalmist is insisting on here, that which has captivated his focus now, are those glories, not those essential glories that belong to the deity of Christ, but to those glories that Christ possesses as he stands as mediator. In other words, those glories that Christ possesses because he has become God-man, 
and stands as the day's man for the church, as surety for his people. These are really the focus of all Psalm 45. Now if we hold that in front of us, we understand then that this language that is set before us is communicating to us ideas that are of the sublimest, most alluring, and most holy. I mean, what we have in front of us here is certainly not the kind of decadence that the prophets expostulate with Israel for enjoying. It's certainly not that kind of aromatic indulgence that that the harlot in Proverbs 7 has in front of her and perfumes her bed with. These ideas that we have in this psalm are things that set before us something that is holy. These are images that are employed for a spiritual purpose. And so what are they? Well, beloved, as you look throughout the Song of Solomon, which, as some have said, I believe rightly, that 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 book is really an extended commentary on this psalm. In the Song of Solomon, these aromas are described both, are predicated of the bride and of Christ, to describe the graces, those gracious characteristics that both possess. And so, you'll find this over and over again. These these specific fragrances are used to describe the beauty and the loveliness of both bride and bridegroom. But even in the New Testament, there is help for us as we would understand this text rightly. You remember that text that I read to you already from 2 Corinthians. There, the apostle says, we are unto God a sweet savor. That's the idea of fragrance there. The apostle says, we are of God a sweet savor. But note what he says, of Christ. We are a sweet savor of Christ. Not sweet, not fragrant in themselves, but fragrant in some connection with the fragrance and the savoriness of Christ. That's the apostle's point. He predicates this statement about himself of something that is true in Christ. That Christ himself is possessed of this sweet-smelling aroma. If you like, the apostle has in view the fragrance of Christ, even as he speaks about himself and his ministry. And that stands to reason, of course, doesn't it? When we read, as we do in Ephesians 5, that Christ offered sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Again, the idea of aroma, though in that text, of course, tied to the temple. The aroma that Christ has throughout Scripture is always, always predicating something of the greatness of Christ, the, the gloriousness of his characteristics. And so rightly, I believe, we understand this text to be referring here to those gracious, those alluring characteristics that Christ possesses as Redeemer. And our theme then, taken from what has already been said, is very basic. It is that Christ's graces are a delight to himself and to his people. And I want us to consider that under three headings. I want us to consider the essence, if you like, of these graces, the enjoyment that is to be had in them, and their effusion throughout the world. Now, take, first of all, the essence of these graces. We're told, of course, that these are garments that smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Well, what's striking here, again, as we look at this psalm in its entirety, is this is an aspect of our princely 
Redeemer. The idea is that these are garments that Christ puts upon himself that are perfumed. There is striking, and we, we perhaps should be careful in how much of a distinction we make, but throughout the Song of Solomon you'll find these kinds of statements. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me, speaking of Christ. His lips, like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. In those cases, you'll notice there the bride speaks highly of those graces that are in Christ himself. And so when she comes to those themes, she speaks of those things that are in him, that are flowing from his lips. But when we come to Psalm 45, when she descri- when, when rather the psalmist describes for us the glory of Christ, he talks about robes that are on Christ, something that is extrinsic to Christ, when he now descends to describe for us his loveliness. The idea is, is that there is something additional that has been acquired by the person of the Son of God. Now, beloved, we should see that, of course, in light of everything that's been said. The psalmist is not dealing in Psalm 45 with God absolute, with the second person of the Trinity, as he stands independent from any redemptive purposes. He is speaking of Christ as he is vested in the office of the mediator. He is speaking of Christ as, of course, he remains God of God, light of light, very God of very God. But he's speaking of Christ as he has taken upon himself the breastplate of righteousness, as he's taken upon himself all of the furnishings of redemption to be a sufficient Savior. That's the focus of Psalm 45. And so when we talk about these robes, and we talk about their perfuming of essence, we should understand that what the psalmist is speaking of here are those graces that Christ has as he fulfills the work of our Redeemer. Now to understand this, friend, there are some very basic texts that help us. Can we speak at all of Christ acquiring something in his incarnation and even throughout his day, the days of his flesh that would equip or furnish him for this work of redemption? And the answer is indubitably yes. Take John 3, for instance. God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. And that is in the fulfillment, of course, of what the prophet himself in Isaiah 61 has said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. There the idea of anointing, you understand, is not merely declaration. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament economy, the idea of anointing was both declaration and equipment. As the one who is truly called by God was anointed, whether prophet, priest, or king, he was in that moment of anointing supposed to be understood to have received all that was necessary to fulfill his office. And here Christ says, here God himself has anointed me. Beloved, we cannot speak of the divine Son, independent of his office as Redeemer, as having been anointed for anything. The divine nature itself is incapable of equipment because it is infinitely perfect. The anointing that is in view here is uniquely tied to Christ as he would, as our Redeemer, take upon himself the work as God-man. 
as he would from on high receive graces by God to fulfill his work as our God-man and as our princely redeemer. And so the apostle says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. He is speaking here of Christ as he stands, yes, still the second person of the adorable Trinity, but as Christ here, one who is in flesh and now equipped, furnished in his flesh to do all that was necessary to accomplish redemption. And so the theme from this first point, beloved, is just this, that there are graces communicated to Christ's human nature as he is Redeemer. And I'll take it to you just directly from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety. That's Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, the third paragraph. What the divines are indicating there is just this idea of anointing and furnishing that belongs to Christ's human nature. These are the robes, as if you like, that Christ puts on. These are not things, if you, if you, you have to understand, that are given to the divine nature. The divine nature is perfect in itself. But as Christ becomes man, these robes come upon him. And what you see here is that these things, these graces that Christ has as he is the God-man, these things are not communicated independent of the second person of the Trinity. These things are graces that come from the divine nature and are communicated by the Spirit of God to the human, but not so as to confuse the natures or vacate the distinction between them. But what I'm saying here very pointedly is just this. That what you have in Christ incarnate and working as Redeemer is a human nature that was extraordinarily equipped to do all that was necessary to secure our salvation. And that grace that was poured upon the human nature was communicated to him through the ministration of his spirit, as Christ in, in Philippians 2 is said to have emptied himself, that is, not removed any of his divine glory, but made himself subservient and dependent upon this ministration. Now, beloved, when you think of it in these terms, then our text becomes so much more clear. You see how Christ speaks of it in Isaiah 11. There shall come, Forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. What's striking about that text in Isaiah 11 is that the Spirit of the Lord, as it comes upon Christ, has these particular effects in view. Wisdom and understanding, power and counsel. All of these ideas are ideas that really belong to Christ as his human nature receives these graces to fulfill his office as Redeemer. And so, historically, our forebears would speak of the graces that Christ's human nature received as in those three categories. Wisdom, power, and holiness. And when we think about these, beloved, we need to recognize that what Christ received 
in these ways. What is human nature received from the divine is just this, that he received them in such perfection and degree as created nature could receive. In other words, what you have in Christ the man, in his human nature, you have the divine nature perfecting in him wisdom and power and holiness that no other man, even Adam himself, never enjoyed. This is the pinnacle and the perfection of humanity. Now, beloved, I know what I've just said here is dense, but it works well with the psalmist's aim to warm our hearts to this king. Because what is the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying here that the Christ, who is our princely redeemer, was absolutely sufficient, even in his human nature, to do all that was necessary. No aspect, none, was left with a question. And so when we read in Psalm 89, 19, that the Lord says, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. He is indicating the very doctrine that we've just been meditating on. Christ was thoroughly and completely equipped in every regard, even in his human nature, to do all that was necessary for our salvation. And so, beloved, Christ is that man who shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Beloved, in his perfected, in his perfected humanity, Christ remained sufficient Savior. And of course, that is true now too of his exalted humanity, no less. But if that's the nature of these graces, that these are those gifts that are given by the divine to the human nature, not to confuse the two natures, but to perfect the human, and so make him sufficient to the task that he must enjoin, that is enjoined to his hand as redeemer, then the question is, what of that next line? What of the enjoyment that the psalmist expresses here? What we find here is that these graces that we've just been meditating on, are the object of Christ's delight. And, beloved, this is something that's not unique even to Psalm 45. Take, for instance, Isaiah 49. Listen, O isles, unto me, says Christ, and hearken ye people from far. The, the Lord hath called me from the womb. And note this, he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. The divine nature could not be made in this way. But the human nature that Christ has would be made, would be equipped, would be polished in this way. And what's striking is, in Isaiah 49, Christ is saying this is something remarkable. This is something that he, he finds noteworthy. Something worthy of our attention. But even more to the point, take Psalm 40. A body hast thou prepared me. I delight to do thy will. Striking is the antecedent to that statement of Christ's willingness and even delight in the work set to his hand is that he has already acknowledged that God has provided for him a body and soul that is equipped to the task. And quite willingly then, and even with delight, he takes upon himself the work 
as a redeemer. These things are delights to Christ. Now, beloved, what do we make of that? What do we make of Christ's delight in these graces? Well, we see here that Christ rejoices in his furnishing, if you like, even in his sufficiency as redeemer of his elect. Beloved, it's the same idea then, understood in this light, as what you have in Isaiah 53. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. In other words, what you see in Isaiah 53 is that when Christ looks at redemption accomplished through his sufficiency, he is satisfied with what he sees. And when Christ looks at the graces that are furnished upon the human nature to do the work of Redeemer, the psalmist in Psalm 45 says, he delights in this. He delights in that sufficiency through which his people would be redeemed. Analogies always break down, but take this for an example. Take that parent, that parent who rejoices to help their child who rejoices that they had both strength and opportunity to help the one whom they love. Their rejoicing in their strength and in their opportunity has nothing really to do with themselves. What they rejoice in is that they were able to do good to their own. And of course, as Christ looks at the wisdom and power and the holiness, the graces communicated to the flesh, there is a love and a delight of complacency. Because these things themselves are worthy of his love. But we can't miss, beloved, that Christ would delight in his sufficiency because through that sufficiency his people would be redeemed. This is Christ delighting in the fact that he would indeed, he would indeed secure all that was necessary for his own. And thirdly, and as we close, we look here at the effusion of these graces. We remember the place where these aromas are found, and that is out of the ivory palaces. Now, the word ivory palace, uh, that occurs only one other place in Scripture. We find it in the prophecy of Amos. And, and in that context, there, Amos is abrading Israel for their decadence. Here, it has, of course, a very different purpose. But when we look at this text, it's important for us not to be hung up, as it were, on the description itself. Why are these palaces so striking? Well, beloved, they're striking because it is the dwelling place of the king. The ivory communicates to us the preciousness of the place, no less. But really, why we're encountering palaces here is because this is where the king is to be found. This is where Christ, as he is our sufficient and princely savior, may be approached. If you like, this is where he holds court. If we understand the text in that way, then understanding the place that the psalmist has in view becomes a question very easily answered. And for that answer, go back in your minds or even in in the scriptures to what we read before in 2 Corinthians 2. You remember that there, in that chapter, you have, of course, the aroma of Christ mentioned again. And there the context is that the apostle is speaking, as he does, there in the 12th verse, of him preaching Christ's gospel 
That door being opened to him, that he might publicly proclaim Christ. And it's in that context that he's speaking here about being made a sweet-smelling savor of God, of Christ. That's the context. The context in 2 Corinthians 2 is that he was one who in the sight of God, he spoke Christ. Where then, according to the apostle, was the aroma of Christ to be found? It was strikingly under the proclamation of the gospel. This is the place, says the apostle, where we of God were made that sweet-smelling savor of Christ. You see here, beloved, these ivory, these precious places, these things that hold out to us, the the place where Christ haunts and where the fragrance of Christ may be enjoyed. According to the New Testament, that is where the preaching of the gospel is found. There the fragrance, the aroma of Christ. And particularly, as we've considered before, these aromas that indicate Christ's sufficiency as the God-man are most known. The implication is simple, isn't it? That Christ is ordinarily enjoyed best. Ordinarily found most fragrant. Ordinarily found most lovely in public worship. Under the preaching of Christ. Beloved, when we think of that, I think it's right for us to remember what we have in 1 Kings 10 is almost a shadow of this. You remember when the Queen of Sheba goes into Solomon's courts, her response to all that she sees is this, Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. She's saying this of Solomon, just, just to be a doorkeeper in this palace, she said, was a high privilege. Beloved, there's a greater than Solomon in corporate worship. There's a greater fragrance and a greater beauty to be found in the public ordinances than would be found in Solomon's palaces. You see then, we begin to answer the question that we started with. The desire of the bride in the Song of Solomon is for this Christ who is so fragrant and so alluring. But the question is, Where can she find him? Where can she find him? She finds him in the Song of Solomon, following the footsteps of the flock. That's the answer that's returned in that book. It's the self-same place that's described by the psalmist here as the ivory palaces. Where the proclamation of Christ is found faithfully, there Christ dwells. In, a, in an extraordinary way, there Christ dwells and may be enjoyed in greatness. Now, beloved, as we look at this doctrine and really do warm to a close, how do we use, how do we apply this high Christology, this doctrine that we have just been thinking about, that Christ 
was furnished in his humanity for all that was necessary to accomplish redemption. I want to submit to you two veins of thought. Remembering that the the older writers following Isaiah 11 told us that these graces were that of wisdom, power, and holiness. Take, Take that first aspect, wisdom and knowledge. What does it mean for our Christ to be possessed extraordinarily and to the perfection of human nature, this wisdom, this this knowledge? Well, let me read to you just a few texts. Christ says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring in and they shall hear my voice. Again, John 14, I go and prepare a place for you. I will, once, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And then John 17. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them which shall believe on me through their word. Speaking there of the apostles. When we read these texts in light of what we've just said, that the God-man in his humanity received all the graces necessary to complete the work. What do we find? Take what I read from John 10. Christ there says that he knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. And then he tells us that there is another fold or sheep rather, of another fold that must be brought in. The implication, beloved, is this, that Christ in his humanity, as Robert Trail puts it, Christ in his humanity did not think or pray for the elect generally, but endowed with this extraordinary grace, Christ had all of the elect in his eye particularly. That meant, beloved, if you are his, he knew you when he went to Calvary. And not only as the omniscient Son of God, but as the Christ who is endowed with all knowledge necessary to be a Redeemer. And as exalted, it's no different. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, says Christ, ye have done it unto me. When he looks at all the goodness that have fallen upon the church, Christ says, I know, I know what has come upon you. And he's speaking there as the God-man, as the Theanthropos, as one endowed with the greatest knowledge capable in the human nature. I know, he says, what has been done. To Smyrna, he puts it this way. Our exalted, perfected Christ says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. Oh, our God knows in his omniscience all that befalls all things. But does it not thrill your soul that our elder brother as our Christ, as our sympathetic high priest, also knows right now all that befalls his people? Does that warm your heart, Christian? But take another aspect. 
Christ was endowed with his extraordinary knowledge, but there was something else. You'll find in the scriptures and the gospels that Christ had compassion upon the multitude, upon the blind men at Jericho, upon the woman with the issue of blood and so forth. But we see here, when we read those texts, and we read them in conjunction with what we find in Hebrews 2, that Christ was endowed with an extraordinary sympathy. The graces of the, that fell upon the human nature included incredible, incredible sympathy and compassion. Thomas Goodwin put it this way. He said, God has fashioned the hearts of all men and some uh, unto more mercy and pity naturally than others. But then he says this, Christ's heart had naturally in the temper of it pity, more pity than all men or angels have. You know the kind of sympathetic person uh, that, that will do almost anything for you, who is most merciful in their disposition and largely because of just the nature of their own heart. Beloved, understanding the graces that have fallen upon the human nature, Goodwin tells us pointedly, we need to see that he was furnished with the greatest of that disposition. More merciful and more kind, more disposed to mercy than men or angels. Beloved, that's a just application of this Christology. Now, Christian, I've set before you the living Christ. And in his courts, not because of the building, but because of the ordinances of God's institution, we are in the ivory palaces. But the question obviously is, do we know something of this fragrance? We are here. We are in his courts and under the preaching of his word. But do we know something of this aroma? Do we know something, something more of this pleasing and of this lovely Christ? Christian, I, I won't dwell long on this, but this is a crucial question. This is a crucial question because the reality is as folks enter into public worship, there are some who most certainly know this text by experience, who feed upon the sufficiency of Christ and all that that means for them. They know when they come into the public worship of God something more of the glory of Christ and of the greatness of their redemption. And then sitting right beside them, Another's eyes are glossed over and have no enjoyment of these things. Now, we could say that, of course, in one sense, the one, the one who enjoyed Christ had a desire to do so. The other didn't. And that's really the reason why these differences exist. But don't miss this. Beloved, Christ is sovereign in his court. There are some that he bid come close, and there are some that he calls to remain aloof and afar. Those who are far, 
do not enjoy this text. Beloved, strive. Strive and plead to be those whom Christ admits closely. This is why preparation for public worship is so needed. This is why we should only enter prayerfully. Because we're not coming to a principle, we're not coming to a force. We're coming to a person who may dispense grace or may withhold. And beloved, if we feel our need, this should drive us in earnest to plead that we would be those who would be admitted close and ever closer still to this Christ. And so Christian, as we read this text, the obvious call is to strive to know him more in his sufficiency as our Redeemer, in his loveliness as our princely Messiah. The call is to know and to be able to taste what the psalmist here describes for us as that which is most fragrant, that which is most aromatic, that which is most delightful. Strive for it, Christian. And know that as you strive for it, you seek a Christ who is more merciful than any man. And you seek a Christ who knows you, who knows you as an elder brother and as a sympathetic high priest. Beloved, there are no encouragements more that I can give you because there are depths to the enjoyment of these things that you and I simply have never known. But the opportunity is there. And so come to Christ. Find him as the psalmist finds him. And oh, beloved, may we say, may we say as we meet next week, God willing, that we found here the fragrance of Christ. And we're pleased to be in his presence. Amen.